Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. lesson today comes from Isaiah in chapter 65, picking up in verse 17 and reading through the conclusion of that chapter. Listen now to the Word of God. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating For I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. And no more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. And the one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall inhabit, uh, shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. And they shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we listen to Scripture from, the chapter, from Luke chapter 21, let us rejoice and give thanks and sing. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when no one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They ask him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus said, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, and they will say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not follow immediately. Then Jesus said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before these things occur, they will arrest you and persecute you 
They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your mind to prepare your defense. Do not make up your mind to prepare your defense beforehand. For I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. The word of the Lord. I have an eerie feeling when I read these selections. I always have, to be honest. Over the past several months, they sound even starker and stranger. The selections are designated for use in Christian worship today by a device called the lectionary. There are lectionaries for preaching and for teaching and for daily prayer. They are composed by groups of individuals who work together with organizations to share these with churches around the world. This day, in churches around the nation and around the world, you will hear these two Scripture readings read in Presbyterian and Methodist and Episcopal and Catholic and even some Baptist churches. They use these readings. We don't use them every Sunday, but we use them on many Sundays, and this Sunday is one of those. And I made that decision about six or eight weeks ago that I would use the lectionary to see what God would reveal to us through the wisdom of the church in Scripture. This cycle that we're in is coming close to the end of the the Christian church year, That means Advent is about to begin, and Advent is the beginning of the new year. It's the happy new year as we anticipate the advent of the birth of the Savior. And then we look through Lent for the preparation of Easter. We celebrate the resurrection and the power of the Spirit that comes in Pentecost, and we live in that power. So we we have a cycle of preparation, and we are coming to the end of that cycle at this point. So here we are at the end of one cycle, and we are at the beginning of another cycle. But it is not just the cycle of the church year. We are in another cycle, you all know. It is the cycle in our national and political and social life. And in some ways, it has come to one part of a conclusion before it begins another. Do I need to say anything more? for you to know what I mean. It has been quite a week. Regardless of your position or your party, regardless of how you thought the election of 2016 would turn out, regardless of what you thought that the election of 2016 should turn out, it has been quite a week. And we come to worship on this Sunday, the first Sunday in a new cycle of our national life together. And we are offered these scriptures about new heavens and a new earth, 
What was before will no longer be. Weeping and distress will be no longer. The injustice of an occupying army taking by force the fruits of another's labor will cease. The wolf and the lamb will graze in the same meadow. The lion and the fox shall eat from the same trough. No longer in the place where God lives will there be violence and death. For all of creation, it is a vision of something quite spectacular. The vision from Scripture comes as a prelude to the return of the children of Israel. When it, when it was put together, it was at the end of the Babylonian captivity. They had been literally captive for 60-plus years, and they were returning to their homeland. They had been forcibly removed and taken to Babylon, and they were being returned by a new conquering army. Regardless of your opinion or your assessment of the election we have just lived through, I'm pretty sure that we can all agree that we're not quite at the same point of Isaiah's prophecy, at least the completion of it. The gospel reading is dark. The temple of Jesus' day was a massive project. It had been begun soon after the children of Israel returned. It had been destroyed by the Assyrians, and now they were going to begin rebuilding it. And it took hundreds of years, even lasting to the time just before Jesus' birth. The Romans viewed it as a massive public works project, and that's exactly what it was. The temple stood until A.D. 70 when the Roman army destroyed it in response to a Jewish insurrection. During Jesus' lifetime, there were fears about this Roman occupation. To say that the temple would be destroyed was a great claim. It is, it was a massive building. And even when the Romans did destroy it, they did not remove the foundation of it. What remains to this day are massive blocks that dwarf a human being. You can stand next to a block at the western wall or at the gate of Huldah. You can go there and stand to this day, and the, the blocks are six to eight feet tall and 15 to 20 feet long. Stone, stone, huge pieces of earth that have been moved there to create this foundation, and they are still there. It is impressive. It is awesome. How? How the crowd wanted to know to Jesus. How can you say that this all will all be torn down and destroyed? Then Jesus responds to a question about the end time. What will it look like? What will it be? And he says, don't be led astray. Be careful. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived by those who offer ways through the end times. Many will proclaim what that will look like, but none will be able to deliver. There will be all sorts of calamities and turmoil, wars and rumors of war, natural disaster, plagues and droughts, famines and earthquakes, and maybe even a forest fire or two. There is a way that those events are normal. They last in our life. They, they, we know, we, we, we live through them, we encounter them. But before the real end comes, Jesus goes on, you will be turned on by people that you live with. 
by people that you trust the most. That is a very troubling passage. At various points in our national and in our national life and in world history, there have been times when we have feared our neighbor. During the communist-dominated era of East Germany in the, late, in the 1950s through the 1980s, there was a state security force called the Stasi, and they used informants in the community. They used neighbors and co-workers to report on others who were saying and doing things that were perceived to be or thought to be against the establishment of the state. And then they would vigorously suppress that. There are still places in the world today where being a Christian risks persecution, where being a person of any faith risks some form of persecution. And we need to pray for people of faith. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who face those sorts of challenges and those sorts of uncertainties. But it is not only far away from here, and it has not only been in foreign lands where state agencies or community norms have carried on surveillance against citizens. When I was growing up in Mississippi in the 1960s, there was a state agency called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. And the purpose of it was to gather information on anyone who was doing anything to challenge the legal establishment of segregation. People would have their uh, license plate numbers taken down if they were seen at certain homes or at certain meetings. Names would be compiled. Dossiers would be created. And these are collected, and they are now available that you can see them in the state archives. It was not East Germany, but it definitely was a closed society. There were limits of action and speech. People chose to self-censor because they feared that if they said what they thought, then maybe people would boycott them and they would not have neighbors or friends come and do business with them. They feared for their lives, or if not their lives, for their well-being. So here we are today. How do we, as Christians, in 2016, in this time and in this place, in Georgia and in Alabama and in the United States, how do we deal with that? What are the ways we have that are useful from our faith to engage with the world, to engage with how we understand Christ should be in the world? And what do we do when we discover that maybe one of our brothers or sisters has a different point of view? What can we have and how do we live with it? We cannot assume that all Christians will share the same opinion about the right course for our nation, for our world, and that will lead different people to do different things in the name of their faith. A Presbyterian pastor friend of mine posted on Facebook this week, writing from South Carolina. He wrote, In my office today, I've had someone elatedly share with me that, quote, 
God has answered their prayers and delivered Donald Trump to be our president, end quote. He continued, in my office today, I have had someone share physical pain because they are so terrified that, quote, Donald Trump has become our president and he is so against everything I believe as a Christian. So who is right? Both of these people the pastor writes, both of these people are people of strong Christian faith and they are active in our congregation. Is Donald Trump a sign of God's deliverance or is Donald Trump a witness to the apocalypse? He went on to say that he was going to be using these same Scriptures that, I have, that have been read here this morning and are here for us to think about. I messaged him back and I said, when you get the answer, let me know. Can we have a conversation in this community, in this church, in our city, in our region, where we wrestle with those choices? What we think and how we act on our beliefs does make a difference. For years in the Presbyterian church, many held to a teaching called the spirituality of the church. This doctrine held that the realm of church was, not, was only to teach about personal, moral, ethical matters. Anything beyond that, anything beyond the realm of the personal was not to be taught about, to be studied, or to pre be preached about. The spirituality of the church emerged in the middle part of the 1800s before the Civil War, and it was actually used as an affirmative defense for slavery. It was more popular in the South than in the North, but it was not unknown to have advocates in the North as well. In reality, the spirituality of the church became a way of making an affirmative case for human bondage and slavery. Many of us, in one way or another, on one side or the other, are touched by that institution even to this day. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say all of us are still touched by it. All of us are deeply seared by that institution. It was called a peculiar institution. In reality, it was a horrible institution. Many of us have family experiences. When we look back in our history, in our lineage, where our ancestors either owned slaves or were enslaved. Several years ago, Edward Ball, who was the son of an Episcopal priest that grew up in, he grew up in South Carolina, he wrote a book called Slaves in the Family. His family had large plantations in South Carolina. And for years, his family growing up, they would say, well, we had, we had plantations, but we didn't have many slaves. As an author, he explored that story and he found out that no, our family had 4,000 people that worked in enslavement. And he said, we have to come to terms with it. There were family members who did not like him talking about that. But in fact, it was part of their story it was brutal, and it was ugly. 
in my own family, I know that there are some ancestors of mine who were of that owning class. And I thank God and I hope that you would join me in trusting and in, in, in thanking God as well that those days are no longer in our nation. Slavery and the legacy that it leaves in terms of relating to one another is brutal and ugly. It has marked us and seared us so often. No amount of explanation, no context that can be given can remove the evil that we are all seared with in some form or another. That does not mean that I hold my ancestors in contempt. I am who I am because of what they came, of, of who they are. I, that does not mean that I do not think there's any point in trying to understand context or the history of it. I think that is incredibly important. But what it does mean is that those events mark us in profound ways, and we are all the children of that joint, that composite of legacy, that legacy of, of transforming other people into property. I yearn. I yearn for that time and that place where the vision of the prophet comes into being. I ache to sit on the Lord's holy mountain where we will no longer hear the sound of weeping, where the vineyards that one plants are not taken over by another, where the wolf and the lamb will be able to feed together. That vision, that image is so powerful, and it is one that we will embrace in the Christian church, in this church, as we move toward Christmas with the birth of this baby Jesus who becomes the Prince of Peace who becomes the fulfillment of the prophecy, who becomes the way of seeing the world in a new light. What I've shared is but one visualization of, the, of what following Christ might look like. I do not propose it as a political program, but a vision that might lift our eyes up to see beyond the horizon as to what is off there. What is necessary in this community of faith and in all communities of faith in Christ is that we allow the passion for God's love for all of creation to be lived out. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 is one of the most powerful and loved verses of all times. And there is a second verse that goes with it that I love just as much. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
God's hope in sending Jesus was for salvation, not just for me or for you, but for the world. That was what God wanted. And regardless of where we are in our understanding of things, I hope we can share that passion. Much has been said and much has been done, and there will be much that has to be said and done in the future. And we will need to find the ways to move forward. Max Lucado, the pastor of a large non-denominational church in San Antonio, Texas, this week was asked about his prediction for the election. He was quoted off and on throughout the election cycle for various opinions. And he said, I have a prediction. I know exactly what November 9th will bring. Another day of God's perfect sovereignty, he wrote. God will still be in charge. God will still be on the throne. God will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has God's providence depended on a king, a president, or a ruler, and it won't on those days after. The, the message that Jesus said in describing the world that was to come was dark and people having to bear testimony in difficult circumstances. And then he says, but not a hair on your head will be harmed. And he concluded, hold fast. Hold fast, and you will gain your life. Even in the midst of what you may think is one of the worst things in the world, you will gain your life. Even in the midst, if, if you think the best has happened, we will find our way forward trusting God. And we must allow that there will be differences of opinion about what that will be. No matter what happens or who is involved, as people of faith in all aspects of life, Wherever we may be, let us hold fast and pay attention to the vision of the prophet. We will make mistakes. We will, no doubt, do things that our descendants 150 or 350 years from now will look back and question. But in this moment, let us do the best we can, the best we understand, to follow God revealed in Christ in the midst of so much, we will gain our lives. Would you please pray with me? Under your law, Lord God, we live. And by your will, we seek and we strive to create a government and a society and a world that provides security and hope, justice and goodness. As good citizens, help us to respect our family and our friends and our neighbors when there are differences of opinion. Help us to transform what might be anger into useful communication so that we may work out those matters, those significant matters that divide us. Help us create a spirit that transcends what we want and what we understand, but adheres to what your will would be. Give us wisdom to share your grace as we lift up your name 
and pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.